Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We looked on uh, Good Friday at Hebrews chapter 4, and we mentioned about how you can stop shopping for a Savior, that Jesus Christ is all the Savior you need. Amen? And um, today we want to look at the risen Christ, convincing, commanding, and conquering. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, and I want to ask you to follow along as I read our text for us, just as verses 1 through 11. It says, in the first book, this is Dr. Luke writing this, by the way, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What a wonderful experience that must have been for the disciples. Remember, prior to this, they had seen Christ die on a cross. For the most part, their hopes of him ever establishing the kingdom, restoring the kingdom to Israel, as they asked there, were dashed because they weren't looking for a spiritual savior. They were looking for a physical savior. They were looking for someone who would come into Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, and free them from the people that ruled over them as a nation. They had it all wrong. Even though Christ told them time and time again, the reason I'm going to Jerusalem is to turn myself over and I will die. They couldn't understand that. Sometimes it's funny how God communicates to us in ways that sometimes we don't understand. We can't comprehend it. Um, I was sitting there at the piano as Bob was reading out of 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul, chapter 15. And the idea that someone would be brought back from the dead, I mean, you, you just don't hear of that. That's not a common, everyday experience. And after you saw what Jesus went through, you would definitely think that that person would never come back to life. They thought the same thing of of Lazarus. That's why he was dead and in the tomb and began to smell. He wasn't sleeping. They knew for sure he was dead. And yet God raised him from the dead. That's a miraculous thing. That's a thing that only God can do. And what's interesting as we look at our text today, the other aspect of Christ rising from the dead is that as as supernatural a miracle as that was, it really wasn't for him. He was God in every way. I mean, it would have been a miracle if he would have stayed in the grave (laughs) because God cannot die. 
And so it's, it's important for us to understand that when we believe that Christ could raise individuals, Lazarus, himself, from the dead, and then when we look at our own salvation and we realize that we are basically, before we come to Christ, we're basically dead men walking. The Bible describes us before our experience of salvation in Christ as someone who is, what, dead in their trespasses and sin. Dead means no life, spiritually, zero. Some people want to believe they have enough goodness in them just to to get them through, you know. Hopefully at the pearly gates when finally I die that God will somehow hold up the scales and somehow all the good that I've done throughout my life will outweigh the bad. And I would say most of us here this morning are probably pretty good people as far as the world is concerned. I don't think we have any axe murderers here this morning or terrorists, hopefully not. But you know what? We're all stained by that indelible mark of sin. The Bible says all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. None of us here are holy in our own rights. None of us here are righteous. The Bible says no, not one. And yet, to have a relationship with God, when Jesus was having a conversation with someone in the New Testament, they said, well, how do we have a relationship with God? I'm paraphrasing. And he said, oh, you want a relationship with God the Father? Well, guess what? You have to be perfect, as my Father is perfect. I mean, talk about slamming the door in their face. Who's perfect? None of us. None of us. And so the first point here in our text, we see the risen Christ appearing. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a brief report of the final days of Jesus' earthly time here on earth. After his triumphant resurrection on the third day, until he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, as the scriptures tell us. And there was a period there of time, about 40 days, from the resurrection till the time that he left this planet, earth, and went back to glory. And during that 40-day period, after his death on the cross, after his resurrection from the tomb, he had basically a twofold ministry with his disciples. First of all, he showed himself beyond a shadow of a doubt as being raised from the dead. You know, we hear about people being raised from the dead today. But I've never met someone who's been raised from the dead. I've never seen anyone ever raised from the dead. And I've done a lot of funerals. I mean, I've never seen someone get up out of the casket and say, oh, <laughs> I came back to life. <laughs> See ya. Let's just go to the food now. We don't have to have the memorial service. He showed himself beyond a shadow of a doubt as being raised from the dead. And he also spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And it says here in verse 3 of our text that he presented infallible proofs that rendering is from the King James. I like that, actually. Many infallible proofs, it says. Dr. Morris had a, a book called Many Infallible Proofs on creation and on the infallibility of the Word of God and what he believed as a creation scientist. It tells us here that after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many infallible or convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, stop and think about this. In the cold aftermath of all the agony in the garden, I mean, he was in extreme agony as the Son of God to the point where he was so stressed out that he actually sweat blood. And that's actually a physical condition that can literally happen to people. Their capillaries break and it literally comes out of their pores. After his arrest, after his trial, after being scourged, after being nailed to that cross, his crucifixion, can you imagine the humiliation that went on through that process? Here is the Son of God, the one who created everything around us and he's hanging on a cross and people are spitting in his face. 
Then he was laid in a tomb. After all that happened, he deliberately, he went out of his way to present himself to his disciples as the living one. Not as someone who had died, not as someone who had failed. The Greek present tense here participle means the one who would be continually and continuously alive. Well, how did he present himself? It says that he did it with many convincing proofs or many infallible proofs. Now this is, as I said, Luke writing. He was a medical doctor. He was given to detail. Most doctors are given to detail. They like to explain the details of things. They like to investigate things. Well, here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke chose this technical term that means that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples such compelling, such convincing, infallible proofs that together these these proofs drove away every doubt in their minds. It drove away every question that he was truly standing before them, risen from the dead. I like that word many. He just didn't give one. He gave many, it says. He gave them an overabundance of evidence that having been dead, he was now alive. Why should you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why is that important? Well, first of all, because of the compelling witnesses, the eyewitnesses, the evidence of his resurrection. On 11 specific occasions, we're told that Jesus appeared to his followers across this 40-day period. 11 different occasions. He appeared indoors. He appeared outdoors. He appeared on the mountain of Galilee. He appeared on the suburban road outside of Jerusalem. He appeared by day. He appeared by night. He appeared to individuals. He appeared even to small groups. And he appeared to one large group, the Bible says, that was as large as 500 people at one time. I mean, I could see if I came to you and I said, hey, you know what? Uh, Someone who has just passed away is is alive. They they were risen from the dead. Well, how do you know this to be true? Well, just take my word for it. You probably wouldn't believe me. But if I was able to bring 500 people with me and say, yeah, we saw it happen. We saw this individual dead, and now they're alive. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene at dawn in the garden by the tomb, and then to a group of women who were coming to anoint his dead body. That's why they were coming. They weren't coming to sing Easter songs. They didn't think he was going to rise from the dead. They came to take care of his dead body. His third appearance, that first resurrection, was to two disciples on their way to Emmaus. You remember that story? He walked with them, and he knew who he was. I mean, what a gotcha moment that is. Here is the risen Lord walking with these disciples, and they don't even have a clue who he is. And he's kind of interrogating them. Hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> well, haven't you heard what's going on? You know? Oh, no, tell me about it. <laughs> It's kind of a funny conversation, actually, when you know how it ends. He came to their home. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave the bread to them, and their eyes, it says, were opened, and they knew that it was the risen Lord. See, not everyone believes that Christ is risen from the dead. Not everyone believes that Christ is the Savior. Not everyone believes that their sin is a burden that they can't carry. Not everyone believes that Christ bore that burden of sin for us on Calvary. The only way someone will come to believe that is when God opens your eyes, your spiritual eyes. He has to bring you back from the dead. Remember I said earlier, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. God wants to make us alive so that when we're alive, we can see his glory. We can recognize his forgiveness. We can recognize our need of his forgiveness, our need of a savior. On that same first 
resurrection experience, the, the, the record records us that he appeared also to Simon Peter. That's what it says. And it tells us that he had a private meeting, an individual encounter with Simon Peter and the risen Lord. Now remember who Simon Peter was. He was this guy that said, I'll, I'll, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Well, you know what? When you do, you're going to hear a rooster crow, right? I mean, you're going to hear it. And that's exactly what happened. Denied him three times. I mean, Peter must have been pretty beat up. And we like to talk about Peter because I think it makes us feel good. We would never deny Christ. Really? What's unfortunate, I think that believers deny Christ every day. And what's even worse is they do it willingly. When they're asked to testify on his behalf and they refuse to do so. We all do that. We've all denied Christ in our own way. And here's Simon Peter and this meeting, whatever this meeting was between him and the Lord, it helped turn Peter from this cowering, weak-hearted, he couldn't even stand up to a simple servant girl in the end. When she asked him, are you one of his disciples? The Bible says, no, no, no. That's what his response was. No, no, don't put me with them. It says he even cursed to kind of prove that he wasn't. And then we find in Acts, here's Peter, that same Peter who's cowering in fear. Now he's boldly preaching the message of Christ at Pentecost. What happened? He had an encounter with the risen Christ. That's what happened. The fifth and final appearance on that resurrection was in the evening to a gathering of ten in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there. We recall that story. Jesus came in and stood in their midst, just walked right in. You know, we're going to have a body much like the resurrected body of Christ for those who uh, have trusted in Christ one day. And to see what Christ is able to do with his body was pretty neat. I mean, he just walked right through a wall, walked through a door, and yet he could still eat. That's a good thing, right? I mean, that was good. You know, I, I like that part of it. It's like, well, in the glorified state, are we going to eat? Well, Christ did. So Jesus came and he stood in their midst and they thought, hey, what's going on? Is this, what is this? And they saw his hands, they saw his feet, they saw his side, and they were overjoyed, the Bible says, to see the risen Lord. And they tried to communicate this to Thomas. He was a doubter until he came face to face with Jesus himself. And Jesus said, here, go ahead, Thomas, put your finger in. Here's the wound. This is real. It's really me. And what did Thomas do? He fell down before the Lord and he said, my Lord and my God. He acknowledged who Christ was. According to Luke, Jesus even ate broiled fish as proof that he was risen indeed. See, this was no ghost. This was no ghostly experience. He gave them infallible proofs, proof after proof after proof. He appeared again to the disciples on the shores of Galilee, fixed them a meal, and told them where to let down their nets for the catch. We remember that story. And as Bob read this morning, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, he mentions the most impressive appearance of all in which he appeared to upwards of over 500 people. 500 people. This was likely the same appearance recorded in Matthew in Galilee when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Well, what's interesting, when Paul makes this statement that most of them were still alive, do you understand that? When Paul wrote this letter, when he wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his letter to the Corinthian church, it was around A.D. 55, some of the people that experienced Christ's resurrection firsthand, were still alive. And so he, he literally put his own character, his own name on the line. He said, hey, don't, don't trust me. Look, you can talk to them yourself. Ask them. They're still around. They have identities. They have addresses. They have families. 
More than half of them are still alive. Some observed that if those 500 people have testified six minutes each in a court of law, if you take 500 people and you say you're going to testify for six minutes in a court of law, you would have more than 50 hours of accumulated evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would say that's a lot of evidence. He also appeared in 1 Corinthians 15 to his younger half-brother, James. They grew up together. I mean, how would you like to grow up with Jesus? (sighs) That would be rough. That would be tough to have a brother like Jesus. And it was rough. His own family kind of denied who he was for a long time. They grew up there in the home in Nazareth. But according to John 7, we're told that, that James didn't believe in him at this point. And yet something changed his brother James from being this doubter, from being this skeptic. Guess what? He became the first pastor of the Jerusalem church. Something happened. He became a writer of scripture. He became a martyr for his Christian faith. Doubters wouldn't be killed for something they believe in if they're, if they're filled with doubt. Could it have been anything other than the appearance of his resurrected older half-brother, Jesus Christ, standing in the presence of this one who had grown up alongside of him in that home? Our Lord appeared to all of the apostles and then appeared here in Acts 1 at his ascension on the Mount of Olives. Eleven specific times across 40 days, not to mention the unnamed appearances during this time. Who else he appeared to? Who knows? And then after that, he also appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And then finally to the aged apostle John on the island of Patmos. If you simply take the evidence as is given in the documents of the New Testament, there's no other conclusion than to confess that Jesus Christ, who was dead, is now alive. You have to. For God raised him out of that tomb. Why? Because he was triumphed. He triumphed over death. He triumphed over hell. He triumphed over the grave infallible proofs. Too many people saw him on too many different occasions for it to be a hoax. I mean, to be a hoax, that would be ridiculous. 500 people can't be under hypnosis. Some people believe that the people that encountered Christ were hypnotized or something, and somehow they believed in the resurrected Christ because they were hypnotized. It's crazy. Somebody would have leaked it. I mean, people can't keep secrets like this if it was a hoax, if it had been a sham. So he gave many infallible proofs. And years later, they were still convinced. John wrote in, in his first epistle, in verse 1 of chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we, listen, have heard with our ears and we have seen with our eyes, which we have examined. They just didn't take the word for it. They examined it. Our hands have touched the word of life. The audible, visible expression of the invisible God was made clear through the risen Christ. If you're wondering, did John still believe that? Well, half a century later, John still maintained that he had seen, heard, and touched the risen Lord. Or you think of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Remember Peter, he's just this kind of rough kind of guy. He's a fisherman. Probably real calloused hands and beard. By no means was he mystical in any way. And in his second letter, he said this in verse 16. He said, we have not followed cleverly devised fables. He's speaking as an apostle of Christ. We haven't followed cleverly devised fables when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They were eyewitnesses, something he saw personally. You wonder sometimes what a a secular historian would say to this kind of evidence. Well, you don't have to wonder. I'm going to tell you. 
There's a secular historian by the name of Dr. Paul L. Meyer. He's the professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. Here's what he says about the evidence for Christ's resurrection. He says, the the documentary evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better attested than some events in secular history from just 50 years ago. We have more eyewitness evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead than for the death of Alexander the Great in Babylon in 323 B.C. Or than we do for the famous assertion that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River. More eyewitnesses evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, and these same disciples who saw him live, they saw him die, and then they saw him live again, then they saw him return into the heavens. What a glorious experience, infallible proofs. And during those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, he appeared and offered proofs, and then he gave instruction about the kingdom. It says there in verse 3 of Acts 1, he said he presented himself alive, and then he spoke about the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God mean? What does that mean? It means it's, it's the rule of God as king. That's what that means, very simply. When you become a follower of, of Jesus Christ, you are, are declaring that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord in every area of your life. It's not just a, you know, you come to church once or twice, or you come to church on a Sunday, or you, you go to church on a Wednesday. That has nothing to do with it. When you become a follower, a disciple of Christ, you are declaring him to be who he said he was, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that affects every aspect of your life. So he was speaking during these 40 days about the kingdom of God, about the rule of God, you might say. And he gets specific here, Dr. Luke does, in verse 4, He says, the the Father promised a gift, and indeed the Father had for centuries. The promise stood unfulfilled. What's the promise? That the Holy Spirit, that's the personal presence of God, would invade history and indwell every believer and change the world. Peter quotes the prophecy from Joel chapter 2. And this is the promise of the ages, Not, not only that God would be with us as he was at Bethlehem, not only that God would be for us as he demonstrated that as his sacrifice on Calvary, but literally that God would somehow be in us. That just blows my mind through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's the source of our power. Verse 8, it tells us, See, not only does the risen Christ appear convincing them that he was alive, but secondly, and this is the second point, the risen Christ assigns, he assigns commanding. Verse 8, there's an assignment given to the disciples in verse 8. And there are five points to this, and we can go through these quick. First of all, the power. First, there's a power to accomplish the mission. See, God doesn't save us and then say, okay, have a nice life, I'll see you in heaven. No, he gives us the literal power we need to live a life that's honoring to him because he knows that we could never do it on our own. What would enable a bunch of unlettered, uncultured men to grow a church from about 120 people to well over 25,000 in six months? How does that happen? Exactly right. It happens by the power of God. It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have that same power, beloved, living in us. And I think sometimes we forget that fact. That as Christians, we have the the very power that was evidenced throughout the book of Acts. The Bible says in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God desires to work through us 
as believers. In much the same way, he even worked through the early church believers. And it comes through the power of the Spirit. Secondly, he gives us this purpose here. This power is purposeful. It's not just random power. He says, you will receive power and you will be what? My witnesses. There's a reason why he's giving us this power. It's power with, you might say, a purpose. I think one of the greatest tragedies of our churches today is that we desire the power, but we discard the purpose. (laughs) We want the power of God in our lives to help us with all our issues, but we don't want to hear about God's purpose for our life. And unfortunately today, in many strains of Christianity, the power of the Holy Spirit has come to mean some eccentric or bizarre behavior. That's not the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not the televangelist that speaks in tongues on on your TV program. When you read of the power of the Holy Spirit, there's one common denominator. And that is when the Holy Spirit is present. When the Holy Spirit is present, the disciples brought forth a clear, compelling, and commanding witness to the risen Christ. That's what happened every time. They were to be witnesses. And then thirdly, there's a priority here. There's a purpose for the power, but there's also a purpose that ought to be the top priority. It ought to be primary. You remember that book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He wrote a book several years uh, later called First Things First. And in that book, he has a chapter entitled, The Main Thing is to Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. (laughs) We've all heard that. See, the main thing for a believer in Jesus Christ, a main thing for the follower of Christ, a disciple of the Lord, is found right here in verse 8. Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes it right out for us. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's the main thing. That's the, the great commission as we know it to be. It's worded variously in each of the four Gospels. But the thrust of it is the same every time. The risen Lord was telling his disciples, you know what, I'm going to empower you to bear witness to me. I'll give you the power with the purpose, and that purpose is to be top priority. But I think sometimes we have a hard time with that. Personally, at least I do. I mean, what would you think if the top three American car companies, if every year with their great production facilities and all this stuff, tens of thousands of employees, multiple millions, billions of dollars in capital, what if they produced together about 40 cars? (laughs) You would say, what? Wait a minute, 40 cars? They got all this and they're only giving you 40 cars? You'd scratch your head, you'd say, there's something wrong here. And yet, unfortunately, when you run the numbers, less than 5%, less than 5% of us who claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior bear witness to him on any regular basis whatsoever. That's about one out of 20. I mean, some people say it takes 40 people a year to win one person to Christ on average. Well, with numbers like that, it's not hard to figure out. That's pitiful. If you had a company that had those kind of numbers, you you would go bankrupt. And yet... Somehow we think we're doing well if we baptize our children and get people to transfer letters of membership here, whatever it might be. But Christianity is depleting in America. And we've all seen the surveys. We've probably taken the surveys where it says 
you know, religious preference. Studies have been done. It says, you know what? The little word none is by far what people choose. They don't care. They have none. No religion, no faith is the fastest growing category. So we must accept the responsibility of being a witness. Well, what is a witness? I mean, if you're called to testify in court, we know what it means. What would they assume? If you're a witness, they would assume you, what, saw something. That you had somehow firsthand knowledge of a a person or an event in question. So Jesus is saying here that when the Holy Spirit takes over your life, when, when, when you give your life to Christ and you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be relating what you know from firsthand experience with Jesus Christ to others. That's what a witness is. And the reason why so few witness is because so few have, frankly, anything to say. <laughs> why? Because they haven't had any firsthand experiences with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Makes sense. Sure, maybe they come to church or give some money, feed the poor, whatever. Now, usually this statement is considered a, as a command, as if Jesus were ordering us to be a witness or to witness. And that is true in other statements of the Great Commission. But in this case, it is merely the description of the fact. In other words, if you come to Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what is going to happen. It's undeniable. It's unavoidable. If you're a believer living in submission to the Spirit of God, you will be a witness Well, fourthly here, he shows us the personality of it. You say, what do you mean by that? He says, you will be, what, my, my witnesses. Not just witnesses, but my witnesses. Now, that's not only a possessive word, that we belong to him, that we've given our lives to him, but it also means the direction of our witness, And this is very important to understand. See, the risen Christ is telling them, you are witnesses to me as the object, the personality. We bear witness to him as Christians, the risen Lord. See, unfortunately, most people think only about giving our personal testimony. Our personal testimony. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the process. But in the New Testament, wherever you look, I don't care where you look, it's always secondary. The personal testimony is always secondary. Well, what's primary, you ask? Is a, the primary testimony is a witness to the mighty acts of God in Jesus Christ. His pre-existence as God the Son, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his burial, his victorious resurrection. I mean, without those facts, without an understanding of that, you can't have a personal testimony. There's a professor of evangelism at... uh, Baptist Seminary, and he put it this way, Roy Fish, he says, if you put faith in somebody's testimony, it's like trying to anchor a boat by throwing the anchor on the deck of the boat. It won't hold anything. Kind of makes sense. Picture yourself, you're out in Monterey Bay on a nice nice day, you're on the, the boat, the captain says, hey, let's anchor down, you're in charge. Throw the anchor. You walk over to the anchor and you pick it up and you throw it on the deck of the boat. (laughs) That'd be idiotic. That's not going to do anything. See, you have to anchor in the great acts of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then you can tell your personal experience as kind of collaborating evidence. So many times we're quick to tell our personal testimony. But we forget to give testimony of who God is, what he's done. As you flip through the books 
the pages of the book of Acts, that's what you find witnessing is. Look just on the pages surrounding this text. Look over to chapter 2, verse 32. Peter stood up and said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses to what? This fact. He says it again. Look over in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. In chapter 4, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. Well, what they testify about? That is witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or chapter 5 of Acts, verse 30 and 32. The God of our Father raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. See, when you bear a witness, you are to tell someone about the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means. Now, that can be a brief remark or it can be a a lingering conversation, depending on the situation you find yourself in and the opportunity that the Lord has afforded to you. Don't think you need three hours to give a witness. Sometimes I have people in my car for for less than five minutes. And they leave with some kind of witness. A witness may be a brief word of truth. And maybe move beyond that to a personal testimony or beyond that to give a full biblical presentation of the gospel. Sometimes a witness is just a word about Jesus Christ. And it's just like you're just shooting an arrow into their heart. Sometimes you can tell about what the Lord has done for you. That's appropriate. For you, with you, through you. Sometimes you can open your Bible and walk that person through the plan of salvation and lead them to maybe a saving encounter with Christ. What a glorious experience that is. But our primary witness is to the personality of Jesus Christ. He said, you are witnesses to me. And then the last thing here, fifth, the place. What about the place? It begins where we are. It begins with those immediately close to us. And then kind of envision ever-widening circles from there. We go out and we reach every man, every woman, every boy, every girl on the earth. I think it's very hypocritical to send money to the mission field. And our church does that. I think it's very hypocritical for a church to send money to the mission field when they're not willing to try to win people around the area where they're at, in their own community, in their own backyard. I mean, praise God for missions. That's wonderful. But you know what? You can't delegate this kind of thing. It's not up to the pastor or the elders or the missionaries to be witnesses. You can't hire it done. Jesus said to you and he said to me that we need to start in our own Jerusalem. Oswald Smith said this. He said, the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. And that is so true. It's so true of churches in general. What about sharing your faith in your home among your family members? Or maybe on your job with your coworkers? Or where you live amongst your neighbors? I mean, God gives us opportunities, beloved, every single day to bear witness to Jesus Christ. We just have to be sensitive enough to see them when they come and then be submissive enough to be obedient and give the witness that God asks us to give. When we get out of bed in the mornings, we need to pray, Lord, help me to see that door open to share Christ today. Help me overcome my fear. Help me to say the right thing. Help me not to cower in the fear of being politically incorrect. Help me to be obedient to the call you've put upon my life. 
See, we're, we're to begin where we are. And then we're supposed to reach out to ever-widening circles. And, and that witness continues, and it continues to the ends of the earth. So the risen Christ appears convincing. The risen Christ assigns commanding. And then thirdly, quickly, the risen Christ ascends conquering. He ascends. Look at verses 9 through 11. So Jesus convinced them that he was indeed risen from the dead. And then he commanded his followers to be witnesses from Jerusalem to all the ends of the earth. And then he says, I'll see you later. Hasta la vista. I'm gone. I'm out of here. And then he ascended back to heaven as the conquering king. I mean, what a a miracle. What What a mission he was on. What a master we serve. We've seen the mission, we've seen the master, he's provided the power to accomplish it, the power of his personal presence through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called the Great Commission, by the way, because it's not just a commission, it's a great commission. Why? Because we can't do it alone. We can't do this on our own. We need the Spirit's power, we need God's influence in our lives to accomplish this. And that's why the Spirit of God empowers us. And this, this promise, by the way, was fulfilled 10 days later on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came in power and filled those disciples. And they came out, and what did they do? Even though they were cowering fear after Christ was crucified and was laid in the tomb, all of a sudden, here they come out, they start to preach. And thousands were saved, thousands. The promise was made, and the promise was fulfilled. But what had to happen before this could happen? Well, it tells us. It tells us about the ascension. In in John chapter 16, verses 5 and 7, Jesus told his disciples on the night before his death that he had to leave so the Holy Spirit could come. It was kind of a tag team kind of a deal. All right, Holy Spirit, you're here now. I'm out of here. Jesus told his disciples the Holy Spirit would come. And so in answer to the question, why did Jesus have to return to heaven? Some people say, well, why did he have to go? Why couldn't he have just hung around down here? Why the ascension? The answer is simply this. He had to leave so the Spirit could come and begin his unique ministry. The ascension was necessary for Pentecost to happen when the Spirit would invade and energize those who witness to and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth just as Jesus commanded the circumstances here are, are simple. After Jesus spoke the words of promise and commission, he ascended. It tells us here this event is recorded simply in verse 9. Three facets of his ascension assure us that it was a historical fact. First of all, it was public. You see it there. It didn't happen in some dark corner of the earth. It happened publicly. It happened right before their eyes, verse 9. It happened while they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I mean, he's standing there talking to them. All of a sudden, he just starts to go, and they're like, whoa, where are you going? What's happening? And it says that it was gradual. He just didn't disappear from their sight. It says they watched him go. So it was something that that, that took place. Verse 10, it says they, they watched him intently. That, that word means to stretch. It means to strain. Sometimes I'll sit on the back porch in and, and the Chase Lounge and I'll jets fly over my house. And sometimes I'll say, oh, well, I strain my eyes to see if I can see the logo. Never can because they're too far away. And then I got binoculars. But still, you know, I'm stretching, I'm straining. That's what they were doing. They fixed their eyes on him, it says, and they stretched their necks and they watched him go up. It's like something just fading out of sight. And add to that fact that the participle used here is in the present tense. What's that mean? It says, while they were looking intently at him go up, it means it was gradual. It was gradual. They continued to look as he just disappeared. And then thirdly, it was literal. Jesus was literally and bodily lifted up and a cloud finally had him, uh, hid him from their sight. Where did he go? Well, the angels tell us in verse 11. 
Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. Well, what's he doing up there? Is he just on a break? Water break? Had a tough go at it down here on earth, so he took a little break in heaven? No, he's continuing his ministry. I mean, you have to put it in this perspective. He began before time. He had no beginning. He's God. He existed before time. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on a Roman cross. He was raised from a now empty tomb. He ascended into heaven, and the angels are reporting he's coming back. So he's not done. But what's he doing in heaven between his ascension and his return? Well, Scripture tells us that he's helping us. Really? Yeah, that's what it says. He's pleading our case. He's interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, we looked at this on Friday, who has gone through the heavens, speaking of the ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are tempted, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. What is Jesus doing in heaven? The Bible says he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. Romans 7.25 says that he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? The saints. Those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's also interceding for us. He's praying for you, he's praying for me. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thought? I mean, it's not like he didn't do anything while he was here on earth. I mean, he did all that, he hung on the cross, he died, took all of our sins, he paid for the death, and now he's still at it in heaven. I mean, that's a wonderful thought to think that Jesus the Christ is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He knows all about the secret sin maybe you've been struggling with. He knows all about the depression you're battling. He knows all about the death of that loved one that you're sorrowing over. He knows all about the financial strain you're dealing with that's weighing you down. He even knows that maybe your marriage is in trouble. He knows about that child who's gone astray and maybe broken your heart as a parent. That's why he's praying for you. He's interceding with the Father on your behalf. That answers the question, what he's doing right now. But what happened as he arrived in heaven? When well, Ephesians... Chapter 1, verse 20 and 23. It tells us this. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What are these rulers and authorities and powers and dominions? See, he enters into a whole realm of this mysterious spiritual powers. Maybe we don't fully understand it. But Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, by his death he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Guess who that is? That is the devil. And he freed those held in slavery. When we think of the work of Christ, when we think of the risen Christ, we should see him ascended on high, leading Captive, a host of captives. Colossians 2.15 says, He made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them. 
See, whatever there is that hovers around us in this age in which we live, and personally, I believe there is a spiritual realm out there that's not in our favor, and we see it every day. We see it through the heartache of sin and destruction and death. trying to trip us up, trying to snare us up, trying to brutalize us, to abuse us, whatever it might be. It says that Christ ascended back to the Father and he stripped them of their weapons and their, and their power. In the end, you have to conclude, when you look simply at the evidence, that Christ wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't some madman with a big ego. That's not what the evidence proves. The evidence proves really that he was, he was who he said he was. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. And that he, he rose on that day from the grave, victorious over sin and death, And the Bible says that we'll be caught up with him eventually. Revelation 5.12, it says, we will sing that victory song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I mean, I think that's why Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. He says, hail the day that sees him rise to his throne above the skies, Christ The lamb for sinners given enters now the highest heaven. There for him high triumph waits. Lift up your heads, eternal gates. He has conquered death and sin. Take the king of glory in. I mean, what an awesome moment it will be when our Lord returns one day for us. We can clearly cry out, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let all angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him, what? Lord of all. See, the risen Christ convinces us with infallible proofs that he is risen indeed. The risen Christ commands us that we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth till every person hears. And the risen Christ conquers sin and death and hell and Hades, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now we're called to take that information and to process it. And I don't know where you're at here today. Maybe you're a follower of Christ or maybe you're not. I don't know. God knows. But I trust that you will be willing, that you will at least be willing to to be tempted, even as an unbeliever, to pick up this book and say, okay, you know what? I'll check it out. Start in the Gospel of John. I dare you to start in the Gospel of John and start reading with a heart that says, you know what? I don't know if this is real. I don't know if this is for me or not, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to give God a chance to speak truth into my life. And you know what? I guarantee you you do it with a sincere heart, God will meet you in that place. He will show you your need of a Savior. He'll show you your need of of the forgiveness of your own sin. As many in this room have gone through that process, it's not a comfortable process to go through. And it is a process. But I pray that you allow the process to have its perfect work in your heart, in your life so that you too can make the claim he is risen he is risen indeed Father we thank you for your word we thank you Lord for the example, the witness of the apostles and the risen Christ and the effect that it had on their lives and Lord I pray that I know there's many in this room who The risen Christ has had an effect on their life. It's changed them from the inside out. The Bible says that the old is done away with, and everything has become new. 
And it's such a, it's a glorious thing to come to the point in your life where you realize you can't do anything with your own sin. The burden you're carrying is weighting you down more and more and more each and every day. And that struggle that's going on right now, even in your own heart, is a spiritual struggle. It's a struggle between darkness and light. It's a struggle between good and evil. It's a struggle between God and Satan over your very soul. And I pray that you would tune your heart to the words of God. Take me up on that challenge. Even if you don't have a Bible, talk to me afterwards. I'll get you a Bible. And you can start your journey to find out more and more about your creator, God. Father, we pray for as believers, Lord, that we would come to a point where we are willing to share your, your witness boldly in this world in which we live. This is not the time to be undercover Christians or to be politically correct. This is a time to boldly state where we stand in our Christian faith and make it known clearly by the way we live and by what we say, by what we do, and that that would be a magnet to draw others to Christ. And Father, I pray if, if there's one here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would convict them, that you would help them to cry out to you, that you would help them recognize their own sinfulness before a holy God and to realize that Jesus is the only answer. It's not, your salvation is not based upon what you do, how good of a person you are, or how many good works you may perform. It's It's based on what was done for you by God's own Son, Jesus Christ, when he hung there on Calvary. He paid for your sin. He's offering you the gift of salvation. I pray that you would reach out and take that gift and acknowledge him for who he is. Thank you. Pray you bless our time with family and friends today and also our fellowship time afterwards. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.